Now, see here, Mr. Vandoff, whether you believe it or not, you owe the government 22 years back income taxes. Well, now, suppose I do pay you this money. Mind you, I don't say that I'm going to, but just for the sake of argument. What's the government going to do with it? What do you mean? Well, I wouldn't mind paying for something sensible. What about Congress and the Supreme Court and the President? We gotta pay them, don't we? Not with my money, no, sir. I didn't come here to argue. Hello, everybody. Hello, Tony. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Arathlin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched the winner of the 1938 awards, Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You. And for those who were expecting this to be a rave because of how much we've liked Frank Capra previously, well... Bad news, it's a quasi-prequel to Rent. And I hate (laughs) Rent. Specifically because of the thing that Rent and this have in common, which is the classic Daniel Ortberg response to Rent of, do these people really just think they don't have to pay rent? (laughs) The, The way this movie tries to escape capitalism is so limited and is such an escapist fantasy for such a specific type of white person that I can't stand it. I'm, I'm sorry, what, what was that? You coughed. A specific, oh, type, a specific of- type of person that just might, I don't know what might distinguish them, like hair color or eye color or skin color, something like that. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that it, it is a fantasy about escaping from capitalism, because for me, I didn't take that. I actually think it is more a fantasy of kind of an anarcho-capitalist utopia. It's very, very libertarian. And I have known for a while, and I haven't said anything, that Frank Capper considered himself to be a conservative Republican. And that has not been present at all in the movies we have watched so far of his. And in this one, it is like, it's so Rand Paul. (laughs) Yeah. And like, it is wild to me, like, because I was going to make the argument that like, you know, it's the 30s, it's the 40s. The parties had not sorted as evenly as they have now. So like, that was my whole mindset with like, okay, Capra's a conservative Republican, but he's a conservative Republican during the New Deal. So like, the idea of wealth redistribution apparently was not only not anathema, he supported it, as was evident in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And this movie follows a very similar set of beats with a completely different mindset and a completely different worldview. (laughs) I think it wants to be a narco-communist, but... No, a narco-capitalist. Well, I mean, it kind of wants to... Here's the thing. It wants to be, like, a narco-communist, but it's so low on detail that one, it's super duper libertarian. Yeah. Like it is super libertarian. And two, yeah, it comes off as being just like, oh, you can solve that with money. Like whenever there's a problem with the communism, they're like, oh, we can just throw money at that problem. Right. And it's like, that's not how that works at all. (laughs) No. And I definitely will get into the parallels between this and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town because I think there are so many similarities that it's impossible not to look at them and see how this movie has a much 
more cynical and individualistic perspective than that movie did. But uh, let's dive into the plot. So if people haven't seen it, they know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah. It's weird because the plot is so, like, just there for the series of monologues by Grandpa Vanderhoff. Just Lionel Barrymore. I just think of him as Lionel Barrymore. I just think of him as Grandpa, because that's what everybody calls him. Yeah. The plot, I guess, is these two tracks. And one track is that Dime Store Jimmy Stewart, a.k.a. James Stewart, has fallen in love with a stenographer. That just is Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> but it's weird that oh, he's so bad in this movie. Ugh. I have so much to say that I'm like skipping over things like that. But he has fallen in love with a stenographer from what I guess is supposed to be like lowly origins, but it mm, will get there. I'm going to rewind here and start at the very beginning. So there is a baker and his name is A.P. Kirby. And he is trying to start a munitions factory in the town of Whereversville. And in order to do this, he needs to buy up every single building in a 12-block radius in order to start this munitions factory and to put his competitor out of business. Which I have no idea why that works or why this one old man having his house ruins that plan. Well, I guess they have to build the factory on 12 blocks and I guess grandpa's house would keep them from being able to build the whole thing. I Yeah, I, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. But one guy, grandpa, will not sell his house. He goes to the very same bank, I guess to withdraw money, but he just seems to be basically chatting with a teller whose name is Poppins. I thought he was there specifically to get a buyout offer on the house. Like, he was there for a meeting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead he runs into this teller named Poppins, well, instead of agreeing to sell his house, who makes these little, like, animatronic toys, specifically this one that's like a rabbit that comes out of a cabbage, and convinces him that he should quit and come and live in Grandpa's house, along with all of the other quirky people who live in Grandpa's house. Yes, which is, this is the rent part of the plot line. It's just a house full of quirky people that are too quirky to live in a capitalist society, but not too quirky to have black servants. So Kirby's son, played by Dime Store Jimmy Stewart, who is just Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> He's so bad in this. Uh, I don't know how. Is... In love with the secretary slash stenographer, whatever you want to call her, Alice, who just happens to be Grandpa's granddaughter. We go to Grandpa's house with Poppins and we learn that his daughter is basically writing like the longest novel of all time. Her husband and some guy who also lives in the house are making fireworks in the basement they have another daughter who is an aspiring ballet dancer who just lives in point shoes and is very bad at doing that. And she has a husband who is a marimba player. Yeah. And we just see them being like super quirky. Oh, and then there's the dance instructor who is this like 
Russian stereotype who is very dour and hates everything and says everything stinks. Yeah, and also, like, lets this movie do its, like, weird non-politics politics takes about what kind of economic system we should have by, like, head faking to the Russian Revolution a couple of times. Right. And then there are the two black servants that I guess they're paying. It's never really addressed. I I guess. There is a real estate agent who is supposed to be doing the deal on getting all these buildings bought up for AP Kirby, who has essentially gone out of his way to sick whatever law enforcement he can on grandpa which starts with a guy from the irs coming and saying like oh well you haven't actually paid your taxes and this of course is the same night that jimmy stewart is coming to take alice out for a date so at first everybody in the house thinks that the irs guy is jimmy stewart coming to pick her up And the IRS guy is like, you've never paid taxes in 23 years or whatever, which of course gives Grandpa his opening for the most absurdly libertarian back and forth of the IRS guy of all time. This always pissed me off in like the philosophical dialogues of like, you're just making the other person say the thing you have a good counter argument for. They never bring up all the obvious points where you're an idiot. (laughs) Right. He's like, well, why should I pay taxes? The government doesn't do anything I like. And he's like, well, you have to pay for Congress and the judges and the president. And Grandpa's like, not with my money. Yeah. The Constitution doesn't need my money. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh, and the Constitution. The Constitution's long been paid for. Like, no, no, no one has to pay for the Constitution. That's a fucking ludicrous argument. <sighs> The other thing that confuses me about this scene is immediately after the guy from the IRS leaves, Grandpa's like, I don't owe the IRS any money. And then that's the fucking end of it. Like, did he actually pay taxes for 23 years or not? Oh, I'm sure he didn't. That's the whole point is he doesn't owe the government anything because they're not giving him anything that he wants. That it's okay. That it's not like a store where he goes and chooses the thing he wants to buy. Then why does the IRS never come back for this old man who seemingly has a lot of fucking money and never paid taxes for 23 years? Like, why is that the end of that plot line? (laughs) Because this movie is a libertarian fantasy. (sighs) Anyway, of course, Jimmy Stewart shows up before he goes into all of this and thinks it's quite charming because, you know, whatever, Republicans. There's also a situation where all of the people in the neighborhood who run are really freaking out because they're going to be evicted. But Grandpa's like, no, don't worry about it. I'm not going to sell and then you won't be evicted. And this becomes important later because this is one of the things that makes this so strikingly the negative, like the photo negative of Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Yeah. Alice and Jimmy go on a date. It's quirky and cute. Down to the fact that they like end up on a park bench in the dark somewhere to chat, just like in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. This is before they go to the fancy restaurant, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I want to talk about the fancy restaurant scene. And then he takes her to a fancy restaurant where, of course, his parents happen to also be having dinner. And take it away. So this is played as, like, everyone is staring at Alice because she doesn't belong in high society. And, like, that's all fine. And that's a good critique of terrible rich people. 
But then there's this thing where the out to the scene is for some reason he threatens to scream until the pressure of him threatening to scream makes her scream at this movie. I thought he screamed. No, she's the one that does actually scream. Okay. Which is weird. Because the camera's not on either of them when the scream happens. And I was like, does he just have the most high-pitched feminine scream of all time? I thought that too, but then when you cut back to him, this fucking, this pretend James Stewart, I don't know who this man is, um, (laughs) has such an exaggerated look of shock on his face that it's like, oh, I guess she screamed. But then the out is that he just lies about this restaurant having a bunch of rats that ran across the floor and causes a huge panic and for tons of people to leave and then pays the guy like 20 bucks to buy rat traps and marches out. And it's supposed to be like, it's quirky. It's funny. They're getting their revenge. And it's like, you only got away with this because you have money. This is a shitty rich person thing to do. Who did you get your revenge on? The fucking waiters? Yeah. The people who aren't going to get... Get paid tonight who came to work uh yeah yeah it sucks anyway then we do the whole like failed dinner party where this the mad imposter pretending to be jimmy stewart has the worst fucking plan in the world which is he's going to bring his snooty parents over to his fiance's family's house just on no notice so that his family can see what they're really like when they're not putting on airs. And this is supposed to be a thing he's doing so his family will like this other family, I guess? It's a terrible fucking plan. Yeah, they're supposed to have a planned dinner party the next day, and he purposely brings them over the day before. And of course, like, the dance teacher is there, everybody's being weird and, like, playing marimba and dancing around the living room, and fireworks are going off, as they tend to do quite often. I don't have an illegal fireworks factory in my basement, but if somebody came over for a fancy dinner party the day before they were supposed to, it would go off. Awkwardly and weirdly for me, too. And I would seem like a weirdo. Yeah. It's supposed to be like the family is handling this so bad and they can't hide what weirdos they are. And it's like, this is just a terrible situation where anyone on Earth would look like a weirdo. Why did you have to stack the deck when there's already an illegal fireworks factory and a Russian dance instructor and a guy who has no salient properties except plays the marimba? (laughs) Why do this weird fucking dumb thing? They're already weirdos. Yeah. And this goes back to the Russian Revolution thing, which I'm like not entirely clear on exactly why they are printing up these flyers about like the revolution is coming and the Red Army to go in candy boxes. Yeah. Or fireworks boxes. Oh, it's candy they're making down in the basement in addition to the fireworks. Yeah. I'm like, what are they packing up with the help of these birds? God, this movie. So, like, I guess that's the business that's an actual business here, question mark. Like, that's how their weird little communist utopia pod operates. Sure. Uh, (laughs) Fuck. Yeah, it's just a thing they decide to do because they're so quirky. Is like someone mentions the Russian Revolution and they're like, it seems like that's a great thing to print on candy bars and give to children. This won't come back to haunt us in any way. Wee, let's play the marimba again. So of course it does. And the cops show up to arrest them for 
printing out like communist propaganda and threats. Yeah. And the fireworks go off in the basement at the same time. So they're like, all right, everybody's going to jail. Which for some reason, they all end up in the drunk tank for this. I think because like it was such a bullshit arrest that all they really had was like public, like, whatever they call it when you're drunk in public. Drunk and disorderly conduct, whatever it is. Yeah, and so they just, like, round up everyone in the building because they don't want to deal with the weird Russian dance inspector or figure any of this shit out. And honestly, it's the only time I've sympathized with a cop in, like, five, ten years. (laughs) Is like, I wouldn't want to deal with this crap either. Right. Then the, like, rich, snooty family has to deal with the reality of being in jail and, like, what real people are like. And, like, there's actually, honestly, some fun stuff in there. It's just I hate this movie by that point. Probably my favorite moment in the whole thing is when there is a woman who's obviously been arrested on prostitution charges. And she goes up to the snooty mom and is like, "What's so what's your deal? You look like a class act. I need to get in with that. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yes! Ah, oh, love making people uncomfortable with sex work. And also, like, good for you, sex worker, that you are attempting to, like, move into another income bracket. Yeah. Good call. This is the only part of this movie that's supposed to entirely be about this class-based comedy where it has anything insightful to say about class at all. Yeah. Is, like, this section from where they get arrested to when they're arraigned which is only like five minutes of the movie, but it's kind of the best stretch of the movie. That bit is great. The bit where Alice tries to like reconcile with the mom and the mom's terrible to her and is very direct about why. Right, like you're just not good enough for us. The stuff about how the power of being this wealthy banker does and doesn't operate in the jail is all good stuff. But then we get to the courtroom scene. This is the point where I went, oh, this is just shitty Mr. Deeds goes to town. Yeah. So all of the people from the neighborhood have showed up, despite the fact that this is night court, to support Grandpa. We're going to help pay your fine. And I want to point this out because this pissed me off. In Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, you have the wealthy, quirky guy who ends up in court and all of his friends and supporters and the people he is using his resources to help are there for moral support. No one is pitching in a fucking dime. Yeah. Meanwhile, all these people who are renting and are going to be evicted from their homes who are depending on this rich guy who owns his home not to sell have come out not just for moral support, but to throw money at the situation, which is fucking ridiculous. Also would like to point out that there is an offer by the rich guy to just pay the fine. The terrible bankers just like, I'll pay it. And then like Grandpa Dime Store FDR is like, we don't need your money. We have the community's money. And it's like, take the rich guy's fucking money, you asshole. Yeah. Those families need to eat. Like, what, for your own fucking moral superiority over this rando? Like, fucking get over it. And of course, while they've been in jail, they come to the realization that Grandpa is the guy who won't sell his house, and Grandpa realizes that A.P. Kirby is the one who wants to buy it. And this is important because the judge keeps asking the Kirbys, like, why were you even at their house in the first place? And of course, the mom is so embarrassed, she doesn't want anyone to know that her child was involved with the help for the business. 
And the dad is like, just tell them. And she's like, gonna die of shame or whatever if that happens. So finally, Grandpa is like, oh, he was there for a meeting to talk over buying my house. And then Alice is like, fuck that. No, he wasn't. I was engaged to Tony, but fuck him and fuck his family. I'm out. Which is... Which should be satisfying and isn't. Yeah. It is weird how much that feels like it just comes out of left field. Yeah. In this movie where, like, that should be the emotional backbone of the whole movie, it just feels like, what's Alice doing? Why? Why won't she talk to Tony? What's happening? Given that she has been so class conscious or so class self-conscious the whole movie... And has been like, oh, I'm just not good enough da, 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 for her to have this kind of outburst when she hasn't expressed any actual anger over the situation, just some level of sadness and embarrassment. It, it feels inconsistent with her character. But I mean, everybody in this house is quirky and inconsistent. So whatever. Yeah. And speaking of inconsistent, we get to our next weird ass plot development that's terrible. Um, because now we're in the downbeat portion of Act 3 where everything goes wrong. And so we've got to figure out a way where Grandpa loses the house. But since Grandpa is magic and can make the IRS go away through logical argumentation, he just decides to sell for no fucking reason. Well, the stated reason, which is not a reason, but the stated reason is Alice has fled the city. And she is living in Connecticut with a relative, her... I don't cousin or somebody I don't know anyway uh and so he's like oh well we have to sell the house so that we can go to Connecticut to be with her because she shouldn't be alone I that mm. not thinking at all about all of the other fucking people who are depending on him not to sell his home yes exactly also he has enough money to own a huge home and have two servants well and support seven people yeah who don't work. Alice is the only one who works. Everybody else just fucks around in the house to the point where he's picking up random bank tellers and being like, come over to my house and just make toys. You don't have to work. Also, the whole neighborhood can pitch in to pay the like $800 fine for having an illegal fireworks factory, but he can't like take up a collection plate for a fucking train ticket. Like, Mm. Well, I mean, I think the idea is that they want to buy a place in Connecticut. Well, that they're going to like move there. Sure. But still, that's definitely fuck that. that's like, mm. anyway, <laughs> what a sudden and quirky decision that is terrible and ruins everyone's life. Uh, anyway, now with that, the banker's evil munitions factory monopoly plan comes to fruition his competitor kills himself. Does he kill himself or does he just come in and he's like, you're gonna hate your life if you deal with this, Mr. Scrooge, and then has a heart attack because he needs to die from being greedy? I think it's definitely, like, left ambiguous, but one of the, like, hope, hope, I'm a banker, guys, who's congratulating him before Ramsey, the competitor, comes in, is like, if I were Ramsey, I'd be contemplating suicide right now. Like, maybe he poisoned himself and then walked in to give his last words. I don't know. I think there's time for him to, like, go home and, like... No, he dies at the office, like, in that boardroom. I thought that, like, that's the next day, somehow. Because, like, I... I guess, no, I guess you're right. I guess it has to be the same day, because, like, why would they do the contract signing later? 
So I guess he did just like die of like killing his business. I he died of Act Three. He died of Act Three <laughs> disease. This fucking movie. Anyway, like everything else in this movie. Um, this terrible tragedy that happens to not a major character is just fuel for one of our major characters to, like, make a moral decision and realize that, like, some ambiguous, non-capitalistic, libertarian economic system is what we need to be living in. And now the rich banker goes to Grandpa and is like, give me your weird wisdom, old man. And he's like, I'm family. It's all about family. I'm Dominic Toretto now. Yeah. Meanwhile, street shot, all of the the people that we recognize from the courtroom and who have been like, hey, grandpa, we're all going to get evicted. And he's like, don't worry, are out in the street going, I got an eviction notice. Oh, no, I did too. But but grandpa said he wasn't going to sell. Cut to giant moving van in their driveway. Too bad. You guys aren't family. Fuck you. Which he specifically says that they're family. They call him grandpa, but I guess they don't live in the house. So like... Yeah, it's terrible. He's terrible. Grandpa is a horrible person. Yes. Anyway, now we're back to Jimmy Stewart, I guess. I guess I will allow him to be the human being that he is. (laughs) And his dumb romance with a fiance who's... They have to move to Connecticut or they'll never see her again. Except she came back for her luggage. Literally, she came back for a trunk. And Jimmy Stewart is there, and they're like, hey, it's act three now. Do you want to get back together since there was never any good reason for us to not be together at all? Basically. And they're like, sure. And their house is totally empty except for a two chairs, conveniently. And so Kirby comes in and is like, I don't know what to do. I'm so sad. My life is meaningless or whatever. And Grandpa's like, let's play harmonica, which apparently... Makes everyone come back into the house and dance and the marimba comes back in and it's all fine and everybody gets to move back into the house. Yeah, which boy, they hand wave all of that because if you think about it for three seconds, it all falls apart. Yep. And the next scene is everybody having dinner together, and it turns out that Kirby's company has sold the houses back to everybody, I guess to the landlords, because again, the people don't actually own their homes, and the mom is there, and she is like, still stuck up, but I guess she's getting better about it. The end. This movie is why I can never join the DSA. (laughs) Like, despite having politics significantly more left-wing than any politician the Democratic Party will ever let me vote for in my entire life. (laughs) It's because of this shit. It's because, like, no one considers the second-order effects of anything they do as long as it, like, gives them their happy little utopia of fuck capitalism. Except that it's not a story of fuck capitalism. It's a story of fuck monopolies. It's basically the same structure of uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town where it's like as long as you're quirky and rich and using that money to help other quirky people you're a good capitalist and you shouldn't pay taxes because taxes are bad and then on the other side you have the greedy rich people who are the bad ones so like if you're a snob and you're wealthy you're bad rich but if you're quirky and wealthy then you're a good person Except that what that boils down to in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town is, let me take my wealth and redistribute it to people who actually need it, to people who are suffering, to people who are, like, literally starving, 
And in this, it boils down to, oh, my granddaughter is sad, so fuck all these people who are going to be homeless. It is not rich people should give their money to the poor. It's rich people should give their money to me so I can do whatever I want without having to worry about anything. Or rich people should use their money to do whatever they want instead of using it for uh, purposes of investment or business. That it should be about, like, pursuing your dreams. Yeah. Which is this, like, incredibly fucking bullshit white libertarian perspective and I hate this movie for it. Again, I can't stress enough, this is not like the movie that has had the worst, most stereotypical black servant characters in it, but it is such a wild movie to have them. Because I just spend the entire time going like, do you just have unpaid black servants in your little utopian escape? Because that's a bad look. That's a really bad look. Everyone else in your house is writing a novel that is never ending, making illegal fireworks in your basement, building toys, pursuing dance, even though they are absolutely talentless, and playing marimba, none of which brings in any money at all, and none of which could actually be viewed as... I mean, it is labor to an extent, but it's not supporting this community that he is put together in his home yeah and yet all of the fucking work is done by these two black servants we also have no idea if they're paid which wouldn't even really come up as a question except for the fact that he doesn't want to pay taxes yeah and it would be such an easy fix to just be like have like a fucking chore wheel like they're just part of this too or have a moment where we show them being paid. Yeah, or either one. Because as it is, the problem with rent is that these people having this, like, great bohemian lifestyle has a, like, cost to people around them that the musical kind of wants you to ignore. And, like, you kind of can with rent because it doesn't physicalize that in two characters that are going around doing everyone's laundry <laughs> for them. Yeah, as far as I know, everybody in Rent's doing their own fucking laundry. <laughs> in this one, it's like, you don't need to worry about anything. Drop out of the rat race. Just have fun and play the marimba. Oh, could you make turkey tonight? That'd be really great, Alice. Thanks. Also, can you do our dance teacher's laundry and sew buttons back on his shirt? Yeah, it's... Mm. Just, like, no consideration whether they should be included in the utopia at all. Just no one seems to find it strange or unnatural that these people are doing work for them all the time. Or that, like, that's even a thing that needs to be considered. Yeah, I mean, it is in a... In, I mean, I haven't watched Gone with the Wind yet, and I have watched Jezebel, but we didn't talk about it because we pulled the Bengal answer card for it. But in a number of respects, it is a parallel to, like... Oh, yeah, they're slaves, but we treat them well. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't make it okay. Yeah. Like, okay, you're not rude to your black servants, but so fucking what? They're surrounded by people who are just pursuing their, frankly, for the most part, bullshit dreams, most of which are quite expensive, and they're just, like, waiting on them hand and foot. They're... There's a specific scene where, what is the woman's name? I don't know. They're, I don't even know that they have actually ever called them by a name. Yeah, that's what I was about to say, is like, she might as well just literally be named Mammy. Reba, I think she's Reba. If I'm looking at the list of people on the Wikipedia page, I'm like, oh yeah, I think she's Reba. Yeah, that, yes. And Donald is her partner, husband, boyfriend, something? other black person fair enough she's like polishing this silver tray 
And she puts it down on the table, and one of the fireworks makers, I think Alice's dad, comes up and, like, puts the firecracker down on the thing, lit, and allows it to go off. And now this thing that she has just spent the last few minutes polishing is absolutely covered in soot and is, like, blackened from whatever the gunpowder was. There's no apology. There's no, like... There's not even her rolling her eyes and being like, oh my god, these fucking people again. She's just like, oh, time to polish the silver tray again. They're so happy to be working for these people and, like, enabling their bullshit dreams that it's even worse, actually. Yeah. Than if they were allowed to be unhappy about it. It's completely dismissive of the humanity of these two people because it's like, yeah, well, but they're black, so they're not allowed to have any artistic thing that they want to do instead of cooking us fucking dinner and doing our fucking laundry. You know, I'm wondering now, because as I was watching it, my theory was that the play itself was to blame here because this is based on a play of the same name. And there's still like the little Frank Capra-y moments, like the cut from the doors closing in the business to the cabinet opening in the house, which is a very Capra-y transition. Like, visually, this feels of a piece with the other Capra movies and is better than other movies that we have watched visually coming out of Hollywood. Not Grand Illusion, because Grand Illusion's great, but like the other movies being made in Hollywood this year don't look as good as this movie. But now I'm wondering whether the play is actually really good and handles all these issues? I I mean, it's by Mosshart, so I would guess probably not. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, I, I, eh. yeah, it's just bad. It is, everyone in this is doing such a hollow version of a thing I had liked before. Like, that's why it's Dime Store Jimmy Stewart. This feels like someone was trying to make a Frank Capra film, but couldn't do it because they weren't Frank Capra, except they were Frank Capra. (laughs) Yeah, Dime Store Frank Capra, who is actually Frank Capra. Yeah. That's the whole feel of this movie, is that it's the, like, off-brand Kroger version of a Frank Capra movie. Generic brand equivalent New Deal class comedy. But they got all the right people. They They got who we know makes a good version of that. It's just bad. Apparently in the play, there is no issue with the buying the house thing like that's not a thing that happens at all so it's just a a rich family getting to know a quirky family for the benefit of their children honestly that'd be way better i mean there's still the stuff about him never paying income tax but it leaves out the stuff that ends up making this so infuriating which is that this is a wealthy man who allows for poor people to support him while entirely not seeing that where his own support of them is so conditional as to be absurd and can turn on a dime. And on top of it, he doesn't believe in supporting people through paying taxes either. So I I hate this movie. Yeah, me too. Reba and Donald are there. I bet it plays a little bit better in a like everything is taking place in the living room setting. It says in the, like, play cast page that they're treated like part of the family in the play, which they definitely aren't in the movie, but I also don't necessarily trust Wikipedia on this one, you know? Uh, Or Mossheart, (laughs) sorry. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. But like, I could see a thing where it's like, yeah, there are servants, but we pay them really good money and they've been with us for years and we love them very much and we couldn't imagine life without them, which would be so much better than this, where it's like, don't talk about them, don't think about them, don't acknowledge anything. Also, run to the store. Go, go, go. Which is awful. Yeah, it's a bad movie. So, um... <laughs> So should we rate this bad movie? Yeah, let's rate this bad movie. Um, three, two, two. Uh, oh. I'll really defer to you. Like, just something below five. Like, I, mm, I just, I, it's not like ineptly made bad. It's annoying as hell. I'm going to give it a two. Yeah. Because I really think the only redeeming quality of the entire film is that while it is lacking in Frank Capra's pacing and pathos it still looks good there's some really good shots and i think the whole like quirky family all in the living room stuff and the dinners and everything else are really there to show how good he is at staging a shot it really feels like he probably saw a production of this play and was like oh i would love to do all of these shots yeah and that is how the entire thing feels it's just like frank capper got to set up some cool shots and do some interesting edits But otherwise, this is, like, not a Frank Capra movie. The thing I want to say about the two is, like, I think this is, on a, like, technical level, better than many films we have given a two before. But it, I think it's, like, being docked points because of that thing of, like, we know they can do better. Like, we know... I mean, for me, it's that if this were made by any other director, it would be a one. And I'm bringing it up to a two for the visual and editing quality. I almost feel the exact opposite way, where it's like, if it weren't these people in the cast and it wasn't Frank Capra as the director, I'd be like, well, that sucked. Like, three, (laughs) I guess. Instead, it's like, no, you don't get a three. This, like, this isn't a three for you. Like, this isn't even you at a third of your power. Like the- Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. It It's not. Yeah. Obviously, don't watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Don't watch this film. Like, looking at the poster, looking at, like, the plot overview and who's in it and who directed it, I was like, how did this get lost to time? And it's like, it's because it's bad. Yeah. That's how it got lost to time. I mean, I, I've heard of it before. I know, I know people who have seen it. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody who was like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I Like, I don't mean lost to time, like... It's, you know, one copy in the UCLA Film Vault, but like it is not in the conversation about great Frank Capra films, I don't think, which is weird because it's one of his two best picture wins. And it turns out that that's because this is a bad film. He won for a bad movie. This is definitely one of those situations where they went, we should have really given it to Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. I mean, it feels like that. It feels like they're like, well, we can't give it to the Grand Illusion because that's foreigners. (laughs) And then there's not really an obvious front runner. I mean, maybe Boys Town or The Citadel will like blow us away. But like so far, I don't know outside of Grand Illusion what I really go to bat for. I think we've watched several movies this year that are better than this movie, but not in a like, oh, you gotta give it to four daughters? Like, I mean, you you gotta give it to Grand Illusion. That's by far the best movie that we've seen this year. It's phenomenal. Oh, for sure. But I'm just saying, like, the Academy wasn't gonna give it to a foreign film. Yeah. And given that, it's like, test pilot? Question mark, question mark, question mark? I see why this won. It won for bad reasons, and it's a bad film, and you made a bad song, Petey. But, like... But... 
Nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I understand how the Academy got there, you know? Yes. Anyway, moving on to next week, we are watching Boys Town, starring Mickey Rooney and Spencer Tracy. Which I thought was going to be a real step down from this this week where I was going to, like, dread it after watching such a great film. Yeah. And now I'm, like, kind of curious. This would be the third movie in a row where I kind of like Spencer Tracy, after literally saying I'm happy he's dead on the podcast before. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the last time we saw Mickey Rooney was in one of the movies where we were, like, kind of okay with Spencer Tracy. Yeah. He didn't have much of a part, but he was in it. So we'll see if this is a, like, surprising comeback from from two disgraced actors. <laughs> <laughs> or whether, yes. honestly, it seems very, um... It's a crapshoot. Yeah, it's a real crapshoot. But we shall see. So tune in next week to see what side the coin flip lands on. And until then... This was a fan fiction by a guy that yells debate me online a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Well, I guess we better be going, Tony. Hey, he was pretty mad, wasn't he? Yeah, certainly was. That might get you into an awful lot of trouble, Mr. Vanderhoff. Yeah. Not me. I was only having fun with him. (laughs) I don't owe the government a cent.